This episode is sponsored by Marquette Associates. Marquette is an independent investment consulting firm that was founded in 1986 and has served the same mission ever since, to be a trusted partner to their clients and provide meaningful and thoughtful investment guidance. They've worked with dozens of public organizations in Illinois, and as of December 31st, 2020, that includes 20 firefighter funds across the state, as well as a new consolidated firefighters pension investment fund. Marquette is headquartered in Chicago, and we're grateful for their support of the podcast. You can learn more about Marquette on their website at marquetteassociates.com. This is not an endorsement of Marquette's services. All right, so welcome everyone to uh, the next episode of the Amplify podcast. I am not Jerry Marzullo, and Matt Olson, who's sitting across from me, is not Luke Howison. So I apologize in advance. Um, Jerry is on an African safari, I believe, and Luke is at a pig fire. That is correct. And Fact. wishes he was in a safari, at a safari right. with Jerry Marzullo. Yeah, he's hunting the great missing uh, sideburn. Every, rhinoceros. Every chance that Jerry gets left off of the safari vehicle and just considered one of them and stays <laughs> with the animals. Those lamb chops that he has would be, I mean, like appetizing <laughs> to a lion, wouldn't they? Definitely confusing, at least. I mean, <laughs> for sure. But so anyway, thank you all for uh, tuning in. Um, this subject matter is uh, about vaccinations uh, against covid uh, and again, this is Chuck Sullivan, and Matt Olson's with me, and we do have three other guests with us uh, that we'll introduce here in just a minute. But I just wanted to give a brief overview of um, you know Associated Firefighters of Illinois and uh, the actual vaccine and where we started. And if you go back in time, which I have frequently looking at old emails, just some of the language that was used, even you know back in March of 2020, is just so obscure now. But um, You'll recall that the AFFI was at the forefront, you know, begging for first responders to get tested when there was no testing available. And, you know, it was a miracle when the first three testing sites were uh, stood up and we were successful in, in getting, you know, police, fire and EMS uh, at the front of the line to get tested. Um, and then subsequent to that, when the vaccines became available, um, we, uh, you know, advocated for, again, first responders to uh, be at the front of the line in Tier 1A, and firefighters and paramedics were placed in Tier 1A um, through IDPH, and other firefighters and paramedics in other states weren't as fortunate. So um, so here we are today, um, obviously a somewhat controversial issue. I, I will say that the AFFI, from day one, has strongly encouraged every single member to get vaccinated. It's the most safe and uh, effective approach, we believe. Um, we're listening to the science. Our international, um, who has a COVID-19 uh, task force made up of scientists and medical experts, also are strongly encouraging the vaccine. So um, with us today, we have Drew Hansen, who is the AFFI Director of Health, Safety, and Education. He's also an Arlington Heights firefighter paramedic. And say hello, Drew. Well, hello. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, excited to be a part of it. Uh, and everyone's favorite topic, so don't turn off the podcast yet. <laughs> <laughs> and also we have Ryan Clavone, a friend of mine with the Bolenberg Fire Department, Firefighters Local 3005. Go ahead, Ryan. Introduce the, the real special guest. 
Yeah, and and uh, I want to introduce Dr. Jonathan Pinsky. He is the uh, medical director of infectious control at Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois. He's also an infectious disease specialist. Uh, one of the things that he specializes in, given the current climate that exists right now, is the treatment and management of the COVID-19 patients that come into our facilities. So, uh, Dr. Pinsky, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a, it'll be a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Doctor. I really we, we can't thank you enough. Um, one of the things I think I think is really important that we talk about today is just what's true and untrue, because when when we you know we talk about fighting fires, uh, you know, fire is a chemical process, right? We fight fires using science. Uh, as paramedics, we learn about science and and how the things that we do interact with the body. We trust the doctors when when we're taught, uh, and I don't think that should stop here. So if somebody has either a willingness to get the vaccine or an unwillingness to do the same, I think that if they came to that decision based on real science and an honest conclusion, then at least we've done some good. So, you know, like I said earlier, I was kind of joking, but I think it's true. We, if, we, if we told people on this podcast that water's wet, that fire's hot, that smoke causes cancer, and that the vaccine is safe and effective, I think I'd feel good that I told everybody the truth. Um, so whatever thoughts you can share um, just about that. Uh, if, if, if we could just give, give people some reality about um, why is this vaccine safe and effective and why maybe they shouldn't be so apprehensive. Right. Yeah. I, well, just to give you some perspective, I'm kind of on the front lines of COVID. You know, we've been seeing, we saw some of the first COVID patients in March of 2020. Um, so I kind of have a sense of, you know, what kind of people are at risk you know, for getting COVID. Um, and, you know, it's, got, it's gone through different, different stages. And, you know, last uh, fall and winter, we really got hit hard. You know, we had you know, 60 to 100 patients uh, a day uh, or a census of 60 to 100. We had like 100, over 100 admissions a week. Um, a lot of elderly people coming from nursing homes. Um, the median age was 70. People were dying kind of left and right. It was, re- it was a really awful time. And then the vaccine came on board in December and, you know, we saw the nursing home population get vaccinated and things kind of quieted down in February and then picked up again around March and April. And we noticed something interesting, which is that, you know, we were seeing people come in for COVID, but we weren't seeing nursing home patients anymore. And they were getting younger. Uh, and uh, as you remember, the, the first vaccines they went out to nursing home patients and then later on to the people over 65 and then with chronic medical conditions so now we were seeing we weren't seeing many people over 65 and we hadn't seen a nursing home patient since uh, march of 2021 and so we went through april may june no nursing home patients um and then the the median age of our patients dropped from 70 to about 50 we're seeing a lot of young people and then what we learned was you know, in the past, in the fall and winter, you know, we talked about medical risk factors. So older age, obesity, um, you know, chronic medical conditions. Um, and then in, in the spring, it looked like, well, you know, we weren't seeing those people anymore. Now we were seeing younger people. And the common thread is that they weren't vaccinated. And so now kind of the light went off that, you know, the new vulnerability is just being unvaccinated. And so, you know, we had that kind of quieted down. And then in the summer, July and August, we, we got more, another, you know, the, the Delta surge. So this came on and, um, 
we had, we've had a modest number. We've had like 20 or 30 patients a day in the hospital and about 30 admissions a week over the last few months. Nothing like it was in the fall and winter. The reason is because a lot of people are protected from vaccines. I can tell you that though, the newer patients coming in are, are getting to be a lot more difficult. Um, and a lot of them have, you know, cause a lot, they've gone this far and they still haven't gotten vaccinated. Doc, um, Doc when you say, you, when you say difficult, break that well, down. What in difficult in the treatment? Uh, difficult in the sense of they're not, they're being, they're not getting medical care in the same way. So a lot of people who just decided they didn't want to get vaccinated and then have taken risks like, um, traveling, um, not taking COVID seriously, um, and then getting exposed. And then when they got sick, sometimes they didn't seek medical care right away. Um, and I can talk about the treatments. There's something called monoclonal antibodies. I'm sure you've heard of. They're very effective. Um, so they haven't gotten the antibodies and they, they just come to the emergency room when they're kind of desperate. Maybe you've seen these patients. Um, I had one last week that came in. He was, he came in by ambulance. Actually, I thought that was shocking that a COVID patient could come by ambulance. Um, he was short of breath. Um, and there's so many things along the way that, that he, that he could have done to prevent it. He could have gotten vaccinated, didn't do that. Uh, he, when he got infected, he could have gotten monoclonal antibodies. He didn't do that. Um, he just stayed at home. So, um, I mean, I think and, you're, you're, and, you're describing the demographic that all of us yeah. firemen would fall in stubborn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you guys are pretty smart and we appreciate what you do on the front line. Um, yeah, I, so, I think there's. Um, a, I just think there's a. There's always been a sense of uh, with firemen, they just, you know, it, it's not going to happen to me. And in talking yeah. around the kitchen table and everything, uh, guys that have uh, gotten sick in the past go through a phase of denial. You know, they oh, it's the sniffles, oh, it's allergies, and uh, no one, no one wants COVID. Even the people that will will promise never to be afraid of it and and uh, not fear it. No one wants mm-hmm. it, and they go through a phase of denial. So I think some of these younger folk that, you know, they kind of feel immortal, especially well, the ones that are getting infected now, is exactly what you're describing. That's that demographic. I think you're exactly right. You know, one of the questions sometimes I ask them, because more curiosity, I mean, is why didn't you get vaccinated? Or I ask, why did you wait so long to get vaccinated? And they're like, well, it's been a year and a half, and I haven't gotten COVID yet. And I, I guess what I, you know, what I sense is that, you know, COVID isn't going away. So, you know, you, you, you might be fine now, or maybe fine for a whole year, but, you know, COVID is going to be around. It's, it's a pandemic. It's international. Um, I don't think you can escape it. And the question is, when you do get exposed to it, you know, you, do you want to be protected with immunity from vaccines or do you just want to be, have no protection and, and risk something serious? So, get vaccinated today, you know, you get protected for the short term, but it's also of the long term for long term protection. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think you actually brought up a oh, go ahead, Matt. As you guys are talking, just made me think about um, as we're discussing how um, maybe stubborn firemen can be. I think sometimes it's beyond even that. I don't know that they're necessarily stubborn as much as they're they haven't seen a terrible outcome. Um, 
like this hasn't hit them, right? This, this hasn't impacted my family. This hasn't impacted me personally. I don't necessarily consider it a real threat. I remember a little over a year ago watching the TV and seeing, you know, just a town square in, in an Italian city shut down. It was just empty. And it just I remember blowing my mind that there was nobody there. And I thought, God, that's crazy. Well, fast forward three months from then, and it was here. Uh, and I remember taking my son downtown here in Chicago, just see the lakefront. And the only thing we saw was police officers making sure you didn't get on the lakefront. And downtown was a ghost town. And to see Chicago shut down was amazing. And then it, it trickled down to everywhere else where we were seeing the impact at work. All of a sudden we're gowning up like it's a, you know, a, a hazmat call for a simple diabetic at the grocery store. And all of these things are happening one after the other. And none of it is making us go, man, this is something to be taken seriously. Like if, if we stop time and just woke up today and, and realize where we've been over the last year and a half, it would get our attention. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what will it take for some of these people to consider this very real? So is there, is there a way that you can sort of describe the effects of COVID um, that does sort of bring it home? Like it is a real thing. Right. And, and, you know, it, in the first wave, you know, affected maybe less than 5% of the population. You know, I think now it's probably up to 20% of the population, but a lot of people haven't been affected by COVID or they've seen other people that maybe had a mild illness. And so they weren't, you know, they didn't, you know, and, and the thing about COVID is it can be mild. You know, people can have a mild illness like a cold or it can be very severe and you don't know what it's going to do to your body. And you may, you know, you could be a healthy person and still have a severe case of COVID. So, so you can't, you can't really predict that. Um, yeah, and but I, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. I, I just, you brought up a good point that I think is important for us to understand as well is that last year at the beginning of this, we were dealing with a different beast than what we're dealing with now with Delta. So can you kind of expound a little bit on that? As somebody that says, well, I've yeah. had COVID, I've got the natural immunities right. from it. I had it back in March of 2020. I should be protected, Right. And not just the, the decreasing protection over time that naturally occurs, but what's the difference between what we're battling now compared to what we were battling back at the very beginning of this? Right. So this is a different virus than it was a year ago. And, and part of this is just the, the evolution of a new virus. And it's had a lot of opportunity to evolve. And, you know, if you can think of a, of a virus, like every time it, it replicates, it makes little genetic er errors. They're called mutations. So every time it replicates, it has a mutation and they're completely random. But, you know, when you have millions of replications, some of these random mutations can actually end up being a survival advantage. So if the virus does enough of these replications and one becomes a survival advantage, it's going to kind of take over. So that's basically what happened to Delta. And you can see the evolution of the virus each at each step the one that was more transmissible kind of took over the population. So the first one, the Wuhan strain that was taken over by another strain, the D614G. And then we got into that B117, the alpha strain from the UK. That was like twice as transmissible as the original one. And then we get in the Delta one, which is like five times as transmissible as the original Wuhan strain. And so it's a lot more contagious. The other thing though, is when it has these mutations, it also makes it difficult for the antibodies to bind to the virus and what we call is neutralize it. So if you look at the antibodies against the Wuhan strain or the original strain, they don't neutralize the virus as well, okay? 
Um, and so if you got infected a year ago, um, first of all, two things happen. One is the antibodies that you have may not really be effective against the Delta. And the second thing is the level of those antibodies kind of decline with time. So over, even over six months, there's sufficient decline in time. And so the vaccine is a little bit different because, you know, by getting two doses of uh, Pfizer and Moderna, you really get a very high boosted antibody level. And it's actually like right after the second dose, your antibody levels are like 10 times higher than you, than someone who just had an infection, a recent infection. And so what that does is when you get those super high antibody levels, they can overcome and kind of neutralize the virus better. So if you had, if you had uh, uh, COVID a year ago, you know, you may not be as well protected. Um, one other thing I want to say about past infection is people respond differently. You know, some people have a really strong response to past infection. Other people have a weaker response. There's no way for us to know or for you to know if you're, um, you know, a high level of immunity or not. Um, the blood test that they have, if you check an antibody level, that doesn't really tell you either. It doesn't give you a good answer. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the recommendation is just get vaccinated. You know, don't, don't play around. If you, if you had past infection, you do have immunity, but the level of immunity after vaccination is even better. And what, one thing I want to point out is um, they looked at actually in Kentucky, people who had um, past infection, and they looked at people who got vaccinated and didn't. And the group that got vaccinated who had past infection were about 50% as likely to get reinfected as the group that just that had past infection and didn't get vaccinated. So the vaccine adds like more protection on top of the previous infection. So doc, something we're very, we're very familiar with in, in our line of work is kind of like a risk benefit analysis. It's kind of something that we, we, we size up uh, most fires or uh, calls with. So it's, mm-hmm. it's safe to say applying that same sort of uh, thought process to looking at the vaccine risk versus benefit. What is the risk yeah. of getting the va- the vaccine, even if you've had, you know, had COVID yeah. before and what is the benefit? So- yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, we had, you know, before, you know, to get the data that the FDA needed to for the emergency use authorization, they had to have like 30,000 people in their trials. And so they got really good safety data. But that was only 30,000. You know, now it's been given to, I don't even know how many hundreds of millions of people in the, the U.S. and internationally. So, you know, I think, I think by now, like, there's no question about safety. Um, so, so there's no question. There are some very rare reported reactions, um, which occur like one in a million or one in a hundred thousand. I could get into the specifics, but that doesn't compare at all to the risk of you getting COVID and getting sick or dying. Um, you know, so we have, you know, we have 30 patients in the hospital with COVID. I don't have any patients in the hospital with vaccine reactions. I haven't seen any in this whole time. I've seen like we've had 1700 uh, patients with COVID in the last, you know, since the last year and a half, 1,700. I, I can't, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm not seeing vaccine people with vaccine reactions get admitted. So, yeah. so I kind of parlay off that just a little bit. Um, yeah. The safety and efficacy of it and the risk benefit, you kind of just touched on that a little bit, but there's a, a, a seems to be a pretty significant uh, misconception that there is no long-term data on the safety of it. Can you just speak oh. a little bit to sure. 
Uh, vaccines in general, what, what long-term is yeah. in terms of a vaccine? Yeah, sure. So, um, so when the FDA approved the emergency use authorization, they wanted two months of safety data. Um, the reason for that is because they wanted to make sure the vaccine is safe. Now, two months is not long enough to get long-term effectiveness data. And you can see that because we have like a 95% effectiveness of two months, but the vaccine immunity does wane. And, you know, at, at six months, you know, from four to six months, it's like 84%. Okay. They can't tell that at two months, but this was an emergency. So they had to get it out there and they, were, they weren't going to wait six months to find out, you know, if it's safe and effective um, because people are going to die. So they had to, they had to draw the line somewhere. So, Two months is where you want the safety point to be. The reason for that is vaccine reactions with any vaccine, they occur within the time frame four to six weeks. Two months is on the longest end. So, for instance, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, that usually occurs within, you know, four weeks time frame. Um, the myocarditis occurs in one to two weeks. There's no reaction that's been described with any vaccine that occurs after two months. So in order to get a long-term complication, you would have had to have an event that occurs in the short term. So, um, so, so that's, that's how I would answer that question about, you know, not knowing the long-term effects of vaccines. There, there really aren't any with other vaccines. So that's, that's kind of where, where it goes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, think it's fairly safe to say the risk of getting the vaccine doesn't even yeah. compare to the risk of getting COVID. And uh, I know right. we've almost like at this point become numb with numbers, right? They got thrown at us every single day from the very beginning. Yeah. I can't even think of the numbers, yeah. but yeah, I mean, how and, many but I, hundreds it, one of thousands of millions have died and you know, yeah, it's just, it's, compared. it's just, yeah. it's just horribly tragic. And right. uh, I think one that really hits home with us just recently this week, the National Firefighters Foundation uh, published some numbers uh, that impact us directly. So whether anyone trusts numbers from the CDC or something, this is the National Firefighters Foundation. These are our brothers and sisters. Yeah. And they, they came out this week, and just for a reference, it's the third week in September of 2021, if you're listening to this in, yeah. the, in the future at some point. But so far across the U.S., 170 Active duty firefighters have died from COVID. Oh, that's 86, horrible. 86 of those occurred in 2020. 84 yeah. in September already of 2021. And just for reference, in 2019, line of duty deaths for all of the U.S. for firefighters was 57. This is, oh, wow. and those are numbers just from COVID. Yeah. So, can I talk? Of, yeah, yeah, go, please. No, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, the protection is, re is really important. And, and, and I'm, 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 so grateful that we have vaccines to protect you guys because you are on the front line. But just to piggyback on that, we were talking about past infection before. So, you know, the FDA just, while we're on this call, they just approved boosters for people who've had Pfizer before. And I think that's a great thing because, you know, we know that the immunity from vaccines is just, I mean, it provides tremendous protection, but, um, it, 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 the booster will help more. So I can just talk about this for a, just for a second. So what happens is you have, there's kind of three lines on, on the immune system. You have circulating antibodies. And what that do is it, it, it binds the virus. So if you get exposed and the virus gets in your nose, the antibodies come, they bind up the virus and you won't get infected. Or if you do, it'll be mild. 
And the second line are, are, are memory B cells. And what these do, these also produce antibodies, but they kick in once you get infected. So if, you're, if your antibodies don't block the virus, your memory B cells will start producing antibodies. And then you have T cells that kill the virus and infect itself. So if, you, if you're fully vaccinated and you're, let's say, six months out, your antibody levels aren't going to be as high as they were when you were first vaccinated. But you still have B cells and T cells. So what could happen is you could get exposed to the virus. Your antibody levels may knock it out or they may not. If they don't get to that, you still have the B cells that will produce more antibody. And then the T cell will kill the virus. And that will prevent the virus from getting into your lungs and getting you really sick. But you may end up with a mild infection. Um, and there are some people who who may have a little bit of a weakened immune system and may actually go on to severe infection. That's very rare, but that can happen too. So what they found is the boosters, you give a booster at six months and you actually get triple the antibody levels after the third dose than you did after the second dose. And they measured that four weeks after the second dose, four weeks after the third dose, triple. And then they looked at the antibody levels against Delta and actually they're several fold higher than against the natural strain after the second dose. So you're actually better protected against Delta after a booster than you were um, against the original strain after the second dose. Reason I'm saying this is because like people who got vaccinated, they're gonna need boosters. The people who got infected before, yeah, they had immunity, but they're gonna need boosters too. So it's like everybody's gonna have to get vaccinated, whether you had infection, whether you got vaccinated, you know, everybody's gonna need this. Um, now, what they hope is that with that third dose, that'll provide such a surge to the antibody levels that that'll probably provide a lot long, more longer protection than, than two doses. And, um, you know, it, hopefully what will happen is it'll be like a three-dose series, kind of like hepatitis B. You get one and then another one in one month and then six months, and then you're good. So I remember that, um, Max. We'll Nobody was that. afraid of it. Yeah, right. And it's just an antigen, you know, it's just a protein. All they do is they give the hepatitis B surface antigen protein. And then, you know, you develop an antibody response. You get another dose, you get a bigger response. You get a third dose, you get a huge response. Same thing with COVID, except it's mRNA. So you put the mRNA in and then your body makes the spike protein. You produce an antibody response. That and then like, that spike sounds like a good after-workout drink. Spike, spike <laughs> yeah. protein. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Moderna, they call it the spike back. Oh, she's so it's a awesome. good name. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the reason you feel sick for a day after your second vaccine sometimes, right? Yeah. It's like 10% get fevers. And, I, and, and that uh, happened to me at my second, but it was exactly like the doctors described it. And this is going to be very rudimentary and probably wrong because I'm saying it. <laughs> but it was explained to me. It's like, look, the first vaccine, the first shot, right, That'll that'll sort of give you – um, you know, step one. And then your second shot gives you something for step one to fight with. And that's why you don't feel good. Oh, but by the way, tomorrow you're going to feel yeah. fantastic. And I got the vaccine in the morning and about three in the afternoon, I started feeling bad. Um, and it felt just like a, a mild flu. And I thought, okay, no big deal. I'll go to bed. And I woke up in the morning and I felt fine. And, and I felt fine since. It was, it was hard for me to tell if, uh, I actually had any symptoms or I just had placebo tiredness. It was an excuse to lay on the couch for the whole day. I did. Uh, like, but I, so there was like one day that was like, <laughs> you didn't feel great for like one day. And then you're good for like 
months, you know, it's, it's, you get, you get the long-term benefit. Yeah. And that's the important part. You're good against something that could potentially uh, kill you. Yeah. One of the analogies that we were just kind of uh, going back and forth and just talking a little bit, just at the new member conference that we just had with the AFFI. And um, one of the analogies that kind of popped up in my head is if, if you were walking around FDIC, something that most firemen are familiar with, and you were selling a tool for free that could guarantee that you came home to your family every shift and didn't, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice. How many of those tools yeah. would, would, would get would get snatched up? I mean, that's essentially what is being provided here. And how and there's a how, lot that's not in your control, right? I mean, you can't control what people do and what you're going right. to be exposed to. You may be lucky that you're not going to get exposed to COVID, but I'm sure there's going to you may be in a situation where somebody's going to be in your face, and you're not going to be able to control getting exposed to the virus. Yeah, and so, we've had these conversations clearly around the, the kitchen table a bunch, and, and um, I have some people that I work with, very respectable individuals that have chosen not to get vac- vaccinated, good friends of mine. Um, and one of the things that we hear a lot is, well, it was my choice. That's the burden that, you know, the risk I'm going to take. Uh, and, and I think the, the, the saddest part about that is, um, you ask any of these families that have lost someone to COVID, especially the, you know, firefighter or any, anyone at that matter, um, was the burden really the person that, that passed away or, I mean, that burden stopped there or was the Can impact you, much larger? Is it okay? Is it okay if I don't have a smoke alarm in my house or sprinklers because I'm taking my own risk and I've got kids in the house? Is that okay? And what firefighter would go into a burning building without the scientifically proven PPE that, that we're all afforded nowadays in structural firefighting gear and SCBA respiratory protection, all of those things, have been scientifically proven to reduce our risk when yeah. battling that. And I think that's where we're at with this vaccine, is that we have something that's scientifically proven to be effective to protect us. And and that's something, and, and it's free. Turnout here is not free. A lot of people are really sick in the hospital. I mean, they, you know, the, our average length of stay is about a week. Um, and, you know, they spend a week in a room on oxygen and, you know, some of them get pretty close to being on a ventilator. It's pretty scary. They don't feel great. They're short of breath. They go home on oxygen. Um, most people aren't dying, but, um, you know, it causes significant morbidity. Um, and you don't see those numbers. Hey, Doc, I, so, I think, I think, and I'm kind of changing gears slightly. Um, I think some of the vaccine hesitancy, uh, you mentioned the mild symptoms from the vaccine. Could you speak possibly to um, um, maybe the thought of infertility or blood clots or, or anything? Yeah, like sure. That? Okay, we'll take the infertility first. So, um, first of all, there's no um, basis for that claim, and no one's really sure where that came from. And so it's been studied um, ad nauseum just because I think early on, I think it was in December when the vaccine started rolling out that there was stuff on the internet about women being concerned about infertility. I don't know if it had something to do with the fact that pregnant women were not included in the initial vaccine trial. I'm not sure really where that came from, but 
you know, now we have a lot of data on it. There's absolutely no, nothing to support that there's any effect on, on infertility. Um, and in fact, they have a registry of um, a pregnant women that have been vaccinated. Um, I think there's been over 100,000 in the United States that have been vaccinated. There hasn't been any safety signals. And then I think a smaller group of women, they followed very closely, a few thousand, and they didn't find any safety issues. There was no association with miscarriages. Um, and there hasn't been any association with fertility at all. So, and, and there's really no, no scientific basis for that. It does, there's no real plausible way that that would happen with a vaccine. So I don't know what else to say about it. Sounds like a lot of work dedicated just to disprove a Facebook message. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so you have to disprove something. Um, there's a lot more work. To, yeah, that's right. There's a lot more work to disprove something than to prove something. Like class. So, so Doc, going along with that, though, you know, we hear commonly from many people um, at every end of, of the spectrum that's going to say, you know, I've done my own research. And, you know, with the advent of technology, everybody has the world at their fingertips. And despite, mm -hmm. you know, the Google al algorithms that we create on ourselves from how we search for things and then that can kind of dictate what we see. Aside from that, just kind of looking at things objectively, when we go to search for something, how do we know it's real? I mean, I, can you kind of describe, I don't want to say how it's real, but how do you know it's been proven scientifically? The difference kind of between preprint and, and peer reviewed study items that kind of sometimes seem to surface on the internet and uh, are claimed to be real. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I don't think being a preprint means it's not valid. I mean, I think the, a preprint study just means it hasn't been pre peer reviewed yet. And, and uh, so it's a very premature, a lot of the scientific literature they put out there early so people can read it. Um, so they know about it, you know, because otherwise you have to wait a few months before it gets into a journal and all that. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's good to go to, if, to know a few good sources um, where, you know, you can tr like WebMD, for instance, or Mayo Clinic, you go to the CDC website, um, if you can find some good trusted sites to go to, you know, I, I can, I can, I can tell if something is bogus when I see it, but I, I'm not sure how, what to tell the audience about um, how to discern that. And I think that's kind of the tough part yeah. for a lay person to try to discern right. what's real and what's not real. And again, that's kind of my point is we have to right. rely on the experts and those that are interpreting the data that's put into that. But could you right. uh, just real quick circle back to, uh, what was asked about the blood clots in relation to vaccines? Oh, oh, that's right. So we 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 talked about the fertility, and and I also just to say there's no issues about men fertility or female fertility on on both sides. Um, so the blood clots gets a little bit confusing because this is a lot of medical scientific studies, and then you have to kind of dumb it down. So uh, what happened is so the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine they use um, a a viral vector, it's called adenovirus. So they're very similar vaccines. And with both of those vaccines, there's a very, very rare side effect called um, thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. So, and oh, what yeah, it sure. is is the plate, yeah, the okay. platelets are very low and you <laughs> okay. get, yeah, you get blood clots, but the blood clots are in the brain, cerebral venal venous thrombosis. This is extremely rare. This was picked up, though, through the VAERS system, so the Vaccine uh, Adverse Reporting System that the CDC has. And they picked this up, even though it occurred in one in a million recipients of Johnson & Johnson. 
Okay. How did they pick up a signal that was so rare? And it just shows you that they're, uh, they're able to pick up those things that are so rare with their systems and just kind of, I think that whole process kind of reinforced the safety that the level of safety that they're, um, that they're doing there. So, so what they picked this up is the one in a million. As you, and as you remember, they, they the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, they had to pause that for like, I think it was a week or two to investigate it. And what they determined is, is I think this occurred primarily in um, a woman of childbearing age. And in that age group, it was about one in 100,000. And so what it is is that you get like really low platelets and blood clots in the brain. That's it. It's different than like a pulmonary embolus or deep vein thrombosis, like that's not what that reaction was. And, and the, and the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer, there were no issues about that reaction or any blood clotting issues. I think where people get confused is, you know, blood clots are relatively common in the general population anyway. And so when, you know, someone gets vaccinated and then let's say they have a blood clot, it gets reported so those numbers look like there's blood, a lot of blood clots with vaccines. But if you look at the data, um, the that, you know blood clots are occurring in people who didn't get vaccinated and people who got vaccinated. So you know if you got you know half of the country, well more than that, what like seventy percent of the country has gotten vaccines. A lot of people have gotten blood clots anyway. So it doesn't mean that that's the blood clots, the vaccine is causing blood clots. So what they determined when they looked at everything is there's no association with blood clots in the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer. And the Johnson & Johnson just has that thrombocytopenia and thrombosis reaction. So, um, you know, people have asked, oh, I have a history of blood clots or I'm on birth control pills. There's concern about getting the vaccine. That's not really, there's no really association between having a history of blood clots and having a, you know, an issue with the vaccine. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, um, that's another myth that we can dispel. One of the other, and I think it's fair to point out as well, right. With those blood clots from those adenovirus, uh, mm-hmm. vaccines are treated differently than a traditional one. And yeah, that wasn't known right. at the beginning. Right. And so right. that actually adds to the safety factor. Right, they answer the safety because they learned about the uh, treatment of these. Um, and and the, what it was, is I guess, it's some rare allergic reaction to the adenovirus. You know, I had a, very similar to a heparin-induced allergy um, that you can get. Um, but, you know, this, this you know, one in a million, um, again, if you look at the, if, all, if the only vaccine we had was Johnson & Johnson, I'd be getting that right away. Because it doesn't, like you know, the, the safety, yeah. Ryan's allergic to hard work. <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that the truth <laughs> Zach you mentioned the VAERS system and how sensitive it was to picking up on something that was so rare can you just touch on what VAERS actually is because some uh, people will use cite that as um, something that's going to support their case and if you actually yeah. go in there and look people are reporting side effects such as car accidents Increased muscle mass. Right. I mean, I, I've seen right. some pretty ridiculous yeah. things that I recently, people are I recently well, the whole heard. Point, I recently heard in Vera's, this was told to me, obviously at the firehouse, so it's true, uh, <laughs> that it's documented in Vera's that more people have died from the vaccine than have died from COVID this past year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was, that was yeah so, so what they're saying is that the Vera's doesn't give a cause and effect. They'll just, like you said, 
they encourage people to report things because they don't they don't want to have a filter. They don't want to you know they don't want to miss anything. So anything that happens after you get vaccinated, you they encourage you to get reported, whether it's related or not. And so, um, you know, um, how many people die a day in the United States, you know, then if you happen to get vaccinated that day, it gets reported to VAERS. So, um, you know, in fact, there, there has not been any link to death in getting vaccinated. <laughs> so it's, so safe, it's safe to say VAERS is just casting I, the biggest I, net. I think to, if to you want to know exactly the, 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 the thrombocytopenia and thrombosis syndrome, I think there might have been one death from that, and this is extremely tragic. Um, but there hasn't been any deaths from the mRNA vaccines. And if you look in the grand scheme of things, how many deaths did we prevent by vaccinating all these people? Right. <laughs> so that's definitely the optimistic way of looking at it. Right. So I think it's safe to say, Doctor, that you believe the vaccine is safe and effective. And it is something that if I were to walk into your practice and say, hey, doctor, I'm on the fence, um, should I get this? I, I'm assuming you'd probably tell me yes. I will, and I won't let you leave the office until you say yes. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I have to talk to all my patients, and I make sure I, I, I bring it up. Uh, and uh, I, I would say back in you know April, I, I had a lot of tough conversations um, with, with people. Now it's, it's getting easier and easier. I, I don't think I have very many that haven't been vaccinated at this point. So if you have a fireman that was unvaccinated and uh, he comes into your office and secretly gets vaccinated, but doesn't want to tell his buddies, you would support that. Cause he might just want to still be the tough guy that didn't get vaccinated. He, that might be his MO now. So. He, yeah. I mean, I, I think I don't pa- care if people know about it or not. I just want to be privacy. Yeah. Yeah, and oh. actually, that's a good point to bring up too, though. I mean, how how many decades has the fire service fought to create what is now, you know, termed in every fire service class you take as the culture of safety? And so, to to create an environment that's anything opposite of that, even including this vaccine, is completely unnecessary, and it shouldn't exist when we have something again that's scientifically proven to present us with some safety against something that could kill us. And we're used to that. And ultimately, Ryan, I think that's the right point is we, we really do need to look at this uh, as a scientific decision, a logical decision that is data driven. Um, Experts like Dr. Pinsky aren't telling us this because he has an emotional thought about the vaccine. He, if, if it was anything other than effective, I'm certain he'd be telling us that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, it's not me like that looked that decided it was, uh, you know, scientifically valid. You know, we have a, something called the federal drug administration. Um, and so these are, these are career scientists and they look at every piece and parcel of every data piece. Um, and you know, they have looked at 30,000 people who got vaccinated, you know, in, in the clinical trials and decided it was safe and effective, you know, and, and they, they were open about the studies. Uh, this was published. Um, their entire packet was published. I read the whole thing. And so, you know, just, just knowing that, you know, we have experts looking at me and they don't, they don't cut any corners. Um, you know, just to know that, you know, that the, 
the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was paused for two weeks. Right. That was the utmost level of caution. Um, and and you know, around the world, yeah, transparency around the world. That was like, that was a little frowned upon. Like they thought that was crazy. They're pausing the vaccine. And you think about it, we're, you know, they probably, people probably could have died because they didn't get vaccinated for COVID for those two weeks. Um, and so there was a level, there was a very level high of scrutiny to do that. And so, um, yeah. And I think we're fortunate in the United States where we have, you know, this level, the F, you know, internationally, the FDA has the highest level of safety than any other organization. Yeah. I mean, clearly at the end of the day, just very simply, it's the leading mm-hmm. cause of death of firemen currently. Right. We dedicate a lot of resources to very important, very important endeavors for suicide prevention, mental health, cancer initiatives, our safety and our gear. And currently, right now, we have one of the easiest answers. I, I would consider that a lot of these are preventable deaths. The guys that went before, that passed away before the vaccine, what do you think they would be telling us? Right. And, you know, when, when we and found out. How many out, people do you have on disability? that had COVID and that must be a bigger number. It is. It is. Right. I mean, the deaths are just the tip of the iceberg. Well, and when we realized that smoke was causing cancers, um, we got air packs, right? When we realized that, you know, our our Nomex hood, something we'd never considered 26 years, I think into my fire service career, somebody said, Hey, that thing around your neck, by the way, that's going to give you cancer. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's nowhere near my lungs. doesn't matter. Um, Then we all demanded gear washers, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, to Drew's point, uh, recently we've we've caught on to how dangerous the uh, you know the emotional well being of our firefighters can be, and why so many of us are dying of suicides. And we address that problem, yeah. um, or we're currently addressing that problem. This is no different, and I, I think it's it's just incumbent on the leaders in our organizations, be they the union or the fire department, to rely on people like you, Doctor Pinsky, to just be honest with us as you have been about these vaccines. And I really do appreciate you um, just making the time to clear this up and, and just talk some truth about it. Absolutely. I mean, I see, I see the patients, like I said, in the hospital who have COVID and I ask every, every one of them, you know, why didn't you get vaccinated? And the, the general answer is, you know, they, across the board, they regret not getting vaccinated. And they just said that they, you know, they weren't that worried about it. They heard some bad things about the vaccine. And, and really what it is, is, um, you know, they underestimate COVID. Yeah. I, and, I think we're and, doing and the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can turn anywhere right now on the internet and see every one of the news, news organizations publishing that exact same story. So, you know, someone's family member died and they're, they're, they're pleading, pleading the general public and pleading everyone to get vaccinated. And I think part of the problem is mm. the, the way that we, we see this on TV. I mean, I remember when it was new, uh, there was a ticker, right? Like you could turn on a TV and be like, oh, how many are we at today? Oh man, we're at 30,000. Oh, holy smokes, we got to 100,000. You know, and, and it was it was gross yeah. really, but every day. Now that's not there anymore. We've moved on to a different political, Nikki Minaj, her cousin's testicles, we talked about that instead, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden the ticker's gone and nobody knows. So like we stopped seeing that. So therefore the, the moment has passed and it's no longer important right. to us. And well, it, it still should be. Well, and I think too, the numbers are just to a level where you can't even copy comprehend them. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions across the globe. I mean, like now it's just a number that no one really has a grasp or an idea. I mean, anyone that's been to like the Holocaust museum in Washington, DC, when you see 6 million pairs of shoes, right. right. I mean, when you see a physical, like a 
the physical manifestation of a number like that staggering, it, it, it really drives a point of home. If we could stack up, you know, what, whatever we're at currently for the deaths across the globe, if we could stack up that number of ET yeah. tubes, it probably would be, you know, a mile high. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another, just to highlight something and kind of shine a light on what we actually have right here on this phone call is Dr. Pinsky has, has been uh, an expert in this field since the beginning. And he's been somebody who I've leaned on, whether he likes it or not for some, uh, Probably very ridiculous questions at times. He but, he was he you know, t- he texted me while we were talking. They're right? not ridiculous. <laughs> He's changing his number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I and I think the point that I'm trying to make is that Doctor yeah. Pinsky owes us on this phone call nothing, and he owes the firefighters of Illinois absolutely nothing. And when I reached out to him and asked him about maybe jumping on and sharing some insight into the expertise that he has in this field, he was more than passionately excited to be able to share that and and. I think that's important for us to understand. And Dr. Pinsky, I want to thank you, especially for your time and for your willingness to come on and kind of have this conversation with us. Oh, I'm really happy to do it. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you, Ryan, for, for getting Dr. Pinsky on. Doctor, do you have any like closing thoughts before we uh, sign off? Well, I mean, if you have any more questions, you know, ask Ryan, pass it on to me. I'd be happy to, to, to talk to you personally if you have any specific questions. Outstanding. Anybody else? Anything? I just want to say thank you to everybody. Appreciate all you guys being here. You in particular, Dr. Pinsky. I know this is uh, well past the time you should be um, dealing with this, particularly with us. And I appreciate you taking time away from, you know, your own personal time and your family just to to give us some real, uh, some truth that we needed to hear. Thank you. Facts. You're welcome. Great. And we also want to thank the uh, crew from Fire Fire and Iron Studio, and uh, we greatly appreciate their hospitality. So signing off for now. Can't wait for Jerry and Luke to get back. Thank you all. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.